Hey everybody, welcome back to Cinematics. I'm Ryan, and I'm here today to tell you that, uh, unfortunately, Paul, my usual co-host, has decided to uh, move on to different things in his life and will no longer be hosting this show with me anymore. Um, so after a bit of a break and a bit of a hunt, I've tracked down a new co-host to take over his place. Hi, uh, my name's Mike. I'll be joining Ryan on Cinematics here for the foreseeable future. I'm a big, big fan of film and television. Uh, I'm from the east coast of Canada. I'm a little bit older than Ryan, 10 years older than him. Uh, we have a few things in common. We both have done degrees outside of film and then gone on to pursue some film education. Uh, we both now work in the film industry, both in the lighting department at the moment, uh, here in Vancouver, Canada. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this, Ryan. Really looking forward to discussing uh, some of our favorite movies uh, in the foreseeable future. Me too. So, uh, on that note, we're starting out with a great movie um, called Master and Commander by the director Peter Weir. Uh, it is, uh, it's from 2004. Uh, the writers were Peter Weir himself and John Colley. Uh, Peter Weir's directing and credits include uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Gallipoli, Witness, and Dead Poet Society, to name a few. Uh, John Colley has written um, some television to start his career. He wrote the animated features Happy Feet and Happy Feet 2, as, as well as, uh, more recently, Hotel Mumbai. Uh, it had a $150 million budget, and it, uh, it uh, received 10 Oscar nominations that year. Uh, it's starting uh, with Best Cinematography, Best Sound Edit, which were both the wins. And then it went Best Picture, Best Director, Film Editing, Art Direction, Costume Design, Makeup, Sound Mixing, and Visual Effects, all which were nominations but not didn't produce wins. Uh, this is based on a book series by Patrick O'Brien. Uh, there's 13 books in total that follow the two main characters of this movie. And uh, this it focuses mainly on two of the books. The first one, Master and Commander, and one from later in the series, Far Side of the World, although it touches bits and pieces of all 13. So, Ryan, why are we looking at this movie today? Uh, a few reasons. We're looking at it, first of all, because I think it's a fantastic movie. Um, I'm, I have this weird obsession with tall ships. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know what it is. I've literally never sailed a boat in my life, but I just absolutely love what they look like. I love the power, I guess, that you can get out of storytelling with, with boats. I don't know. There's something about it. They just they stir something in me. So that's uh, one of the reasons I wanted to dig into that. But another reason is that um, this is one of the first movies that I watched when I started getting into film and trying to actively seek out higher caliber quality filmmaking rather than just whatever bland uh, blockbuster was you know popular at the time um it was recommended to me by uh a girl that i was seeing her mother who we shared a love of ships and uh i i don't know i just uh i checked it out and it kind of just reminded me of what kind of things you can do with the film medium beyond just what your basic filmmaker does in storytelling. Um, and there's just so much to dig into with that. So that's, uh, that's why I picked it. I would love to hear your, uh, your context for when you uh, first saw it. 
Um, so I saw it roughly when it came out, probably by the time it got on, out on um, home video, as we called oh. it at the time. Uh, <clears throat> but it um, it was one of those things, like, my attraction to it at the time wasn't, like, from a filmmaking point of view. It was more, um, like, it, I, I was, like, a lot of the viewing public uh, attracted by the, the, the A-list actors in it. And uh, this is this was a uh, like obviously Russell Crowe headlines it, and this is like him like the late he had a he had a he had a heck of a and uh, <laughs> end of the '90s start of the 2000s. <laughs> uh, he was coming off like L.A. Confidential, The Insider, Gladiator, Beautiful Mind before the, coming out with this movie a few years after Beautiful Mind, and so it was one of those things where it was just like he's in a movie, we're going to see it, and so I saw it. In th- theaters i believe but it wasn't a very good theater the theater i saw it in was a uh one one screen theater in a small town in nova scotia <laughs> called anti uh so the sound sucked and the picture wasn't that great and it was i remember it being dark so like a lot of the night exterior stuff was kind of not difficult to make out it was actually something that's really surprised me, and we'll get into it when we talk more about the cine of how bright the night exteriors are when I've watched when <laughs> I watched this more recently. Um, so that's essentially like the context of coming into this was was uh, was to watch a Russell Crowe, the latest Russell Crowe movie. But like n- knowing what I know about film now, like Peter Weir is a like a brilliant director. I've seen many of his films over the years. And then the DP, which is uh, Russell Boyd, has done a ton of movies that I loved, including a bunch of the, the like most successful Peter Weir movies. But of course, uh, he uh, he captured my heart as a young boy by doing uh, doing the lighting for Crocodile Dundee, of course, which uh, you know I was shocked to see really? on his resume. But uh, I didn't know that Peter Boyd has done everything from Master and Commander, Picnic at Hi- uh, Hanging Rock. Crocodile Dundee, which are both amazing uh, but different uh, ends of the Australian film uh, industry, and uh, but he's also he also did movies like in the '90s, White Man Can't Jump, which is like uh, <laughs> you know Wesley Snipes and yeah, Woody Harrelson. So like the, the guy has done a real uh, like plethora of different styles, and uh, Tin Cup uh, is another one he did. So he did Operation Dumbo Drop. Like he's done movies that aren't, you know, wouldn't be seen in the Oscars, wouldn't even get you an invite to to watch the Oscars. Um, but he, but he's he's also done these great pieces, um, and so I think his style is something to look at. Well, why don't we just jump into the the technical part of it then? Being as that's where we let off with your uh, your component, I I am very interested to hear what you have to say about the actual lighting and cinematography you were mentioning, because uh, I know for me watching it, um, it like it looks good. It's not like it's a badly shot movie, but it's not like a David Fincher film or whatever where you're, you know, every shot is extremely carefully constructed to tell a story about the characters and how it's framed and things like that. Um, it seems very, it seemed to me to be very, utilitarian i guess um and what really stands out for me in this is is the sound um now now it won a a best sound editing and didn't get the sound mixing um which i kind of like i get that the editing is good first of all 
the choices that they made and what they put in and how they put it in and where are all really great. Um, but the mo to me, the most powerful part of that component is the fact that those sounds were mixed in the right way to give dominance to certain sounds and not others. Um, primarily, I'm thinking about ship noises. Um, and I think the perfect scene, and it's the scene everybody uses, but when Mr. Blagney, the blonde officer kid, is getting his arm cut off, the silence in that scene says so much more than any soundtrack or or crazy loud mix could have sound, uh, sold. It's quiet ship creaking. It's the quiet clink of tools. Very tastefully used flesh noises that don't like overtake things and don't blow it up. The silence of the kid who squeaks a little bit, but that's about it. You know, like all of that is mixed together in such a way that like it feels empty. And yet that emptiness is what makes it so painful to watch. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. That scene also really stood out to me. Um, it's probably not the, uh, for lack of, uh, of knowledge of what to actually call it, I'm going to say it's like the Hitchcockian approach to filming a scene where you do, you let the audience do a lot of the work. Um, now, I mean, sorry, a lot of it's done, you're right, with the sound editing, but so was the shower scene in Psycho, right? Mm -hmm. so you don't actually see the stabs. It's done with sound design and quick cuts. Now, this scene didn't have the quick cuts, but it had the sound design, but it's not gory. But uh, thinking back on it, it was a scene that I remember when I saw it the first time, like I remembered that scene going into it this time and I remembered it being gory because my mind had built the gore because of, like you said, tasteful flesh noises. But uh, but like to saw through someone's arm, I, like in my head, I just remember gallons of blood like and that doesn't exist in the in the scene. It's a very, very tastefully shot scene. Definitely to keep it in that PG where the movie lands in PG. So to show an arm amputation is probably not PG. But it was also, I think it, it, it played to the feeling of the scene better than if you were to show some... Because we countless war films have had uh, like field operations. And it got really, really popular like late 90s to do those as gory as possible because it was... To do it not gory, you're not servicing what the, the horrors of war. But this, I felt, displayed the horrors of war, um, especially with the context of the, it being a 14-year-old like midshipman and all that kind of thing. I think he was a, a lieutenant, but yeah. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, all of that context and, and the sound editing, I think, really, really worked. Now, that my point about the sound, though, and the mixing versus the editing, and I agree, uh, often I don't understand why those two don't go together, but I think part of why the sound editing was focused on so much here was because these editors I, I, I read in an article went out and got actual 12-pound cannons, shot them, shot them through wood, recorded that, they set up mics like, uh, you know, like 80 feet away from the cannon. So they got the sound of a cannonball traveling over the mic. And so they they went and they built the library of ship cannon uh, edit, uh, sound. 
and and by doing so they really added like because you hear every splinter of wood flying over your head when you're watching especially like i now watch this on a laptop with headphones in um and uh i mean not the best way to judge a picture but uh but also but it sounded amazing through through the headphones and like and it, yeah it really like you feel each cannonball piercing the hull and you feel every splintered piece of oak flying over your head and uh and you and it it let it lends itself to the terror that these uh characters who you're following along with are are uh experiencing that that's fair okay i guess i would like to clarify i suppose that i i do um, I do certainly recognize that like the jobs are done by different people. They're entirely different jobs. Um, I guess what my thought, my, my point that I was thinking was that I, I had felt that both were extremely important to the story. And as such, both, uh, like I found it interesting that one got it over the other, um, but having heard that, I didn't realize that they went that detailed into the recording of sound. And that's, you know, not, not that a lot of people don't do that, but that is kind of above and beyond the call of duty, which we'll talk about later. <laughs> yeah. And absolutely. I was just going to add that, like, and, um, and this was a very, this was a unique Oscar year in that it was the final Lord of the Rings that won and swept everything, I believe. So the year that the Lord of the Rings kind of got like their cumulative Oscars as the Oscars are wont to do give give Oscars for for the career you've had uh, not so much the picture you've made um and you know did did I did I think uh the final Lord of the Rings movie deserved whatever 10 or 10 wins or 8 to 10 wins I forget what it, like it's going on memory now but it, it had a lot of wins and it got a lot of them in the categories that this was nominated for, and it got a lot of them in the in those categories because of the three films as a whole. I feel from like people were like, "This is our last chance to give this like production a, a, an award for saying great job on the sound in these three movies, and great job on the visual effects, and great job on whatever." And so, in a for, from that point of view, I can see why they maybe split the mixing and the editing, and they were like, "We can't fault this master and commander. The sound design, the sound edit is amazing, but let's also throw a throw." And we've already acknowledged how good the mixing is by giving it a nomination, so we can give the win to this other movie, which we're holding up this year as the movie. And not that I agree with that, but that seems to be how the Oscars play sometimes. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the whole point that people often forget about the Oscars is that at the end of the day, the sole purpose of them is supposed to be to give people commendations and recommendation, or not recommendation, um, commendations for for solid work. And um, that really, at the end of the day, is all they're supposed to be about, regardless of whatever else they've become. The point of it is that there are a lot of really talented people out there making really talented things and doing really amazing work that don't get a lot of opportunity to get recognized. And this is kind of their chance to have that sort of in the public recognition for what they do. Um, uh, another to, to follow to that mixing point, something that added to why I felt like the mixing was really good. I'm not going to continue arguing the point about 
how it should have won it because I it, it doesn't it's neither here nor there. But uh, it was a segue into talking about the music, which I remember the first time I watched it coming out of that thinking there was no music in that movie and then I watched it again and I realized that there was but it was so well interlaid into the rest of the soundtrack that it didn't it never became about the score it was about servicing the movie in whatever was best and so you get these pieces that are really stunning compositions that flow into and fill space where space is needed and aren't there when they don't need to be like the room to breathe with the the surgery scene or how the fact the fact that the fight like the battles don't really have music over them uh for the most part and all of the all of the music is either diegetic itself or else um using diegetic instruments that have been established like the violin and cello are the kind of the main instruments of all of the soundtrack other than the drums like the snare drum for beating to quarters which gets added into some of the tracks as well so it was like a really subtle mix of non-obtrusive music that didn't take attention away from the story but just made those moments that needed that uh emotional support if you will um more support while giving the silence where it was most powerful. I agree. And that goes to something I really liked about this movie, which is it establishes the world right off the bat. When we, the opening shot is, is a boat in the open ocean and it gives you a title card telling you the name of the boat. Well, it gives you a little uh, time and date stamp with what's going on in the world. Napoleon's the King of Europe or whatever he's, called himself the, the napoleonic whatever. wars uh and it, yeah it's 1805 and uh and then we see this uh the hms surprise which if i'm gonna point out one thing with the movie it might be the name of that boat it's a garbage name for like a battleship it is a real boat though the hms surprise was a real frigate that was actually present at the battle uh the defense of a specific fort about which the original version of the Star Spangled Banner song was written. Oh, so it's the one that lost the uh, USS Constitution, the Iron old Ironsides. Well, the Constitution is the one that the Asheron was actually based on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't have it in my head. It's, what it's the name all right. Is. It's like we're just speculating. Mick Henry something. Right. Something Mick Henry or anyway, it involved Henry and Mick in it. <laughs> okay, but it, that's and apparently there's a song that was made about that battle that the Star Spangled Banner is like beat comes from that song and the surprise fought in that battle. Okay. So it is a real ship. It was a real name and it was a historical war hero of a ship. But I do agree also that it's kind of an awful name and I feel like it sort of lives for the pun at the end more than anything. That was going to be my point was that the the whole thing is to pay off that one joke in the big coach's speech before the big game, or in this case, the speech before the final battle. Which, by but, the way, much less effective than Lesser of Two Weevils, I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a funny... Yeah, anyway, we'll get into Weevils that Weevils was well. better. Weevils is definitely better. Uh, uh, there's a... Yeah, he has a great line about uh, someone who will make a pun will pick your pocket, uh, which I always find amusing. The denigration of puns. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Undeserved no, denigration. Yeah. <laughs> but the, so the 
film makes a very big point to establish our world and the confines in which we find ourselves for 90% of this film, which is on the HMS Surprise. And because of that, I thought they took great care in the filmmaking process to try to only include that which is found or within the confines of the uh, the hull of the ship, essentially, which goes to your point about the music and uh, the diegetic uh, music that would then blend into non-diegetic when you would cut from them playing to at night to they did that shot, which I actually wanted to ask you about. They do a transition shot near the start, and it's kind of like the end of the first act, kind of, where they the, uh, the two are playing music together, which, uh, when we get to the writing point, I think is a brilliantly efficient way to show uh, the relationship between two characters is is that music scene, uh, but we'll get into that. Uh, because the, but with the music is it, it, they start playing, we cut outside of the ship. Uh, I don't think we fall into the water. We just, we're in near the anchor. And then it does this like day to night transition or night to day to transition on the anchor where it goes down and then it kind of follows the contours of the anchor. And then as it starts to point back up again, it's now daytime. And I don't know if that was just a cool shot or if there was some other reason why why we cut to the anchor. It's the only time, as far as I know, that we cut to an underwater piece of the boat outside of the debris and things that people are caught in later. And we cut to it, and it's... And in a movie, and it this is a, a two-hour-plus movie, um, still, though, I don't think they're wasting seconds or frames of the film. And so to show us an anchor for three to five seconds or whatever it was seemed interesting to me, but I, I, di I didn't, I didn't uh, get to a, a root meaning of it that I was happy with in my own brain. So weirdly, I spent a lot of time thinking about that shot for how little it actually is of the movie. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why that shot existed. And the best storytelling reason I can come up with is that it is the representation of the completion of repairs, the raising of the anchor, and the surprise continuing its trek. So we're seeing the anchor, and the idea with that pan, I think, is that without having to draw the anchor, we're almost, it looks like the anchor's being raised out of the water. So it's, it's that sort of single short shot that shows us repairs are done, ship is underway, we're not having to think too much about why suddenly things are moving. So it gives us a bit of a transition and it gets us from night to day and it gets us, it, it's transitionary, but specifically I think it's that like repairs are done. The hunt continues. Well, that's better than what the two things, the two conclusions I came to, which was, it's just a cool shot. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, it is that too. There's that one. And then the other one is I went that uh, stupid metaphor of like, like an anchor, like emotional baggage anchor. Uh, we, we were just with these two men, and so far in the film, this is the first time we've really just seen them together in a scene, was that first music uh, they played together, that first piece of music they played together. And so I was like, oh, the anchor represents their history and what they're, what they're dragging along with them, both themselves but everybody on the ship in, in another way. And I don't know if that's too, like... You know, like that's too. I've written too many essay questions for an English lit degree, or or what? But like that was that was kind of my early thoughts on it. Two things can be true. 
yeah. as as the uh, as is the line from Disenchanted. Um, <laughs> I, I I think that kind of applies though. I mean, in a certain sense, the the anchor is a key component of the ship. It's the weight of the ship in a lot of ways, and the ship is what grounds them, and the ship is what holds them back in this whole hunt. The fact that their ship is not of a quality to fight the Asheron properly, things like that. Um, yeah, so I think that's valid. But I think that a lot of that contextual discussion is just like as is with any academic paper or or, or in-depth, you know, the philosophical analysis of a text. Um, probably not put there by the authors necessarily uh, and more subscribed or applied by the people viewing it, um, which is part of why art is the way it is, I guess. But yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I guess uh, that probably brings us right over to into Cine, right? Yeah, yeah. I got nothing left on sound, so let's talk Cine for a bit here. Well, I guess I'll just say what are what were your initial thoughts? I've kind of given a little bit of mine earlier. I um I was shocked at how bright the night exteriors were, which they do. To be fair to them, establish with that same opening shot. Like that's it's a night exterior open ocean shot of the boat which i'm pretty sure is one is a miniature because they shot miniatures at the weta studio in uh, new zealand and i i think i read they shot a week there or something so i'm pretty sure anytime we don't see characters on the boat and we're in a wide i'm pretty sure it's a miniature except um, for the asheron which the asheron was apparently mostly cg Oh, okay. But yeah, so they do establish like we're out on the open ocean and look how bright the moon is because of, in that shot, it's bordered in night, but it's there's a very big uh, moon reflection off the ocean. And uh, so we were, it gives you the ability to then say, look how bright it is on these things and, and blah, blah, blah. And also we need to see detail. The ship, they paid a lot of money for the ship. Mm-hmm. They want to show it off. And uh, and half the movie takes place at night. And also, wood looks cool lit at night, um, especially by flame. So I thought it was a shame in, that they didn't incorporate more lanterns onto the night exteriors when you're standing on the bridge or you're standing somewhere like on the boat. That's like, if you're on the watch, why can't you have a lantern close by to you that's illuminating your face as opposed to just the moonlight? But maybe that's not... Maybe they were doing some historical accuracy thing that, like, you didn't load up the top of a boat at night with a ton of things, especially when you're chasing another boat. Uh, you're, you were trying to stay slight, slightly low profile. And that's fine, but if we're going to, you know, I guess it's it's where you want to cut that corner. Uh, do you want it to, the moon to be, like, you know, only a few stops lower than the sun? Or do you want to add, uh, do you want to add some sort of flame on or something to light their faces flame on <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah and then i guess a few of the other things i did that i that i that i bumped on a little bit was um they took the opportunities a lot to put in like a, a like a bit of a hard backlight through windows and stuff and like especially in the captain's uh chambers uh like russell crowe sits with his back to the windows on the back of the boat and I guess you're to read that there's lanterns hanging out there because he's got this like warm, hard backlight that comes in. And um, to me, it felt it felt weird in its consistency. 
because if it's if it's coming from a lantern then it should be there should be some movement or something if it's on the boat i don't and this is me not knowing how boats work that well and uh, also you speaking as a gaffer yeah oh definitely this is all me as, <laughs> this is me as a lighting guy like but if i was like if i was doing that nowadays i would have had some sort of either flickering thing in there that felt like a lantern uh like with some led device or uh if it was an old tungsten fixture you could put some sort of magic gadget dimmer on it that would give you a flicker effect and or i guess the other option um i guess part of the reason i bumped on it was it was a different quality to the light that was on his face both in color and and uh har- and like har- and, and uh hardness so like uh the quality of light was really hard which makes sense it's a backlight that's what a lot of guys do with backlights uh we do it all the time um but then it it didn't match the same warmth of the kitchen or the the table lanterns or whatever was lighting their face in the captain's chambers so it felt weird that it was like a different level of warmth if it's all fire but again i'm being super nitpicky otherwise it's a really beautiful film i think i think uh what they show you and what they don't show you is obviously on purpose and i thought their use uh their painting with light as you as it were uh i thought uh helped illustrate the story well which is the point of lighting uh, all the rest of the stuff i just said i mean let's not dismiss it because it was genius but uh <laughs> <laughs> but uh no but it's it's all like that's all more preference than it is good or bad um like it's there was nothing wrong with the lighting but i have nitpicky things because mainly because i'm a lighting guy it's the it's the one that i had the most problems with compared to the other two things we've discussed because i'm not those things mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm not a sound mixer uh, or editor and i'm not uh so like i, I really that type of stuff uh, yeah the music and all that stuff like that's n- none of that is my forte um but lighting is so i, I will always be pickier on that because i i'm trained to look for it. Well, okay, so to the, to what you said, first of all, I kind of agree. I do agree with all of your nitpicky points. Uh, I think they're all accurate. I think they are all um, particular. But I think that when you're making a movie, you are supposed to be particular. And if you're spending $150 million on a movie, you want to you, you know, you do um, as best you can in every field with it. Um, so I don't think they're invalid, and I do agree with them. Um, I think that my issue was that right from the get-go, I got this sense from both the cinematography and the lighting, like I said, that was very utilitarian. It was very much, this is a tool used to show the audience the characters and what they're going through. And so we're going to put the camera places that show us as much of the important information as we can in the best and most readable way and the lighting is going to be done in such a way that it is going to allow people to see the things that they need to see and it felt less like it was being used in a way that was um for its own sake to make the image i don't want to say artistic so that's the wrong word but there's like there's a um it wasn't lighting for the sake of making the lighting look good. It was lighting for the sake of serving the purpose of the story is how I felt about it. And so 
I realized halfway or three quarters of the way through the movie, the the third or fourth time I've watched it, that I still had not paid any attention to to that detail because it felt like the film was not paying attention to that detail, so I wasn't really thinking about it. But going back to it now and thinking on what it looked like, it felt bright for the most part. Although I would argue your point a bit on some of that night stuff, only in the sense that, you know, the scene where the Asheron catches up to them past Brazil and they drop the fake boat behind them so they can steer off and get behind it again. Um, I felt that scene was quite dark. I, I think the scene that they were doing all that in is absolutely was well lit and dark and looked cool. I will say that once they've snuffed out all the lanterns on their boat and they're sailing away and they're all on the bridge, it's it's lit like extreme like you can read every detail of every face of all the seven to people in the frame on the back of the boat. So it's it's not a big deal. Like, it's utilitarian. It's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely. Yeah. You're you're. That's a great great point. Like um and listen. Uh, they shot in a tank for whatever, six weeks or six months or whatever. And they shot on the open ocean for a couple weeks or whatever. And so like, I understand that there is great, great difficulties in lighting in those circumstances. I just, I guess I'll say that. Yeah. And I only paid attention to the lighting this time because a, like I said, it's what I do, but B it's because of this podcast. Like, I was expecting to talk about the technical sides of this movie, so I kind of paid attention more than I do. I'm very much the target audience for a lot of filmmakers because if you sell me the world in the first like five to ten minutes, the first act even, I'm bought in and uh, a lot. I don't bump on a lot of that stuff, but I was specifically looking on this one, and it felt studio-y. It felt like... It felt like it was like, it's definitely a step above like a boat in inside of like a four walled studio. With a washed out lighting and yeah, so lighting the set kind of thing. It, it felt above that, but it, it like, it it still felt like. It was no practical lighting Deacons kind of style. Yeah, of like I guess. And that loving is, the shadows. Yeah. And that's, I'm for not seeing as much. Uh, if if that's how it would be in that moment, um, because I think, and it's it's a little difficult because we're you're introduced to a plethora of char- like a ton of characters. I said plethora twice in this th- episode so Ooh, far. Fancy. I'll try to limit my <laughs> yeah. use of plethora. <laughs> Your multi-syllabic <on> <laughs> words. <laughs> well, no, not that. I just I just think it's a not that great of a word to have used twice already. I, I love it in it's my debut word. podcast. Uh, <laughs> I guess. At the end of the day, I just it like and I, again, I'm it's because I'm I'm acting as a critic in this moment that I found something to critique. But as a viewer, when I watched it the first time, I like I had no memories of what this looked like lighting wise. Although I guess I said I, I felt it looked dark in the theater, but that was probably the projector more than the the film itself. But yeah, it just it it felt utilitarian. It was very much serve the story, but I I do think you can serve the story. I, I think you could have served the story with better lighting. Without being afraid of shadows. It felt like it, the the movie was a bit afraid of the shadows. Yeah. Which is funny considering that they are, in a lot of these cases, they are kind of relying on the fact that you aren't seeing what's around them, you know? Uh, like shooting in those tanks, you have to be very aware of the fact that, like, you can't show the outside of it a whole lot by uh, you know and by shooting miniatures there's only so much that you can 
work into that aspect and the little bit of time they had on the ocean it's like they have to be careful about how far out they go because there was like there was stories about how there was one day where they went too far off the coast and they're shooting and then suddenly they're trying to get back and it's late and there's big swells coming in and things got a little sketchy with boat transfers and stuff like that so there's a lot of safety concerns so like every step of the way along there you're trying to hide things to sell on the location of a movie that starts in the middle of the ocean and ends in the middle of the ocean and almost never leaves the middle of the ocean except for the Galapagos pretty much. Yeah. In in the day it was less applicable um because you don't you aren't going to have shadows when you're in broad sunlight with nothing to make shadows when uh and if there's cloud cover it's going to give you that diffused light and they seem to rely quite nicely on that and the smoke from flintlocks and stuff to give that really nice atmosphere throughout that looked really good but it also gives it like a very washed out look as well that I don't know maybe they were matching night to by doing that or maybe they didn't think about that, and that's just me coming up with a reason. But no, very well. Uh, that very well could have been a reason. Like, like, like I said, I think they had a lot more on their plate than where the lights go. That's not, and that's not the only thing that, like, cinematography, a director of photography, the lights and where they go, and the quality and the shape of the light. That's fifty percent of your job. The other fifties, camera placement, lenses, and where all that stuff, what like, and all of that, what that entails. And that I thought they nailed the the framing and and the storytelling with the camera I thought was beautiful. But again, I'll use your word utilitarian, because it at no point did the lighting or the or the camera say look at me. Like, do you know what I mean? And not that like you referenced Deacons earlier. I don't think his lighting says look at me that often either. No, it doesn't. And a few other you know, there's a lot of cine cinematographers that I I don't. Like, I think a lot of them don't. There aren't many that have like a, hey, look at me. This is like in the same way directors have, have a look. Well, and, and I think there's there's a difference between, hey, look at me lighting and lighting that is uh, done for the sake of lighting and is interesting and dynamic and can still not call attention to itself, but it's just got more range versus the, hey, look at me in my mind if any part of the filmmaking process jumps out as saying, hey, look at me, it's going to pull the audience out. And therefore, unless it's the point of the story, isn't serving the story. So you have to balance that somehow. Certainly. But there are like Robert Richardson, who's like people would know he's done a lot of Tarantino movies. Um, he also did a lot of Oliver Stone or a few Oliver Stone movies. But like one of his big calling cards is a really hard top light. And he uses it in a ton of movies. Um, it works really well when people are sat at tables because it's just you're you're making a skip bounce, just bashing light <gasps> off the table. When people are sat at tables. Uh, like and it works well elsewhere. Like he incorporates it even when it shouldn't be there. Like in Django Unchained, the movie opens up with Christoph Waltz on that dentist uh, thing, uh, the um, horse and carriage buggy, and it's going through the woods. So, and I believe again, it's night and he's got a lantern beside him. But if you look, if you look at that scene, first of all, that lantern's doing a ton of lighting, if that's what we're supposed to think is the light, but that's fine because that's a lighting cheat we always use. If you have anything in the frame that can do everything you want it to do. That's like lighting 101. Like if there's a bulb in the corner of the room 
that can light someone's face on the other side of the room quite easily. Um, but uh, yeah. but if you look at that Django, uh, like it's this heavy top light, and where's this where's this warm top light coming from in the middle of the woods? It, it <laughs> like that doesn't exist. There's nothing warm to be there in like the late 1800s woods in America somewhere, um, or or whatever time that movie took place. Um, but like, uh, so I think you can, there's a, there's a, you know, you can have a signature look as a DP that doesn't say like, except for people who are looking for it, that doesn't say like, Hey, look at me kind of thing. But I guess, and again, maybe it's cause I was looking for it this time, but I actually like, I legit bumped on some of the lighting here. Like I legit like looked at it and went, Oh, like. I wouldn't have done it that way. That's or, what you chose to do. Okay. Yeah, and and that's fine. Again, again, these most of the decisions that I didn't like were our preference as opposed to um, right or wrong. I guess there's not a ton that's right or wrong in filmmaking. <laughs> it's a lot of it's preference. Preference or or finding ways to do something that is considered in film language to be incorrect to the audience in a way that makes it correct within the film but like judging by like television in the 70s 80s and 90s that most of it looked like complete garbage yeah like the lighting was terrible and people ate that like the biggest numbers i mean there's a lot of other reasons for that they had all the attention because there wasn't a thousand other things you could be doing uh and you know the internet and streaming services but like the numbers of television were never bigger than they were in the 80s like the numbers Cheers did weekly or Seinfeld did weekly. And you would, can't say those are well-lit shows. No, they're terribly lit shows. They look like garbage. Yeah. But uh, so I don't think Cine matters. I mean, and there, but there Uh-oh. was also a thing. Uh, there was also back then there was also television versus uh, film. And film was is the prestige theatrical thing. cinema, and you know. we've now they have that uh, prestige television, uh, golden age of television, Game of Thrones, all and that, Breaking Bad, yeah, and that started with Sopranos and blah blah. But even like network shows like West Wing had, I wouldn't say great. It's cool lighting. I wouldn't say it's great lighting, but it was really cool for television at the time. Because it was doing things like it was having people whose faces were half in shadow and stuff like things that television wasn't doing at the time. Right. Um, so anyway, the like the point the point I guess I'm overall trying to make is that uh, I think cinematography lighting matters a lot to tell a story and facilitate telling a story, but I don't know that most of the audience cares as much as perhaps I do. Yeah, yeah, I I think that that's a fair statement. I mean, if you don't know how things are lit or you don't have that kind of firsthand access to things, um, you don't think about it or notice it as much unless you've studied it or you've, even if you haven't worked in film and you don't know how it works, you've maybe looked into how it's done. Um, So I think you're right. I, I think there's a lot more we could say about the cine of it but yeah i think we're getting on in time and we definitely have some stuff story-wise that we need to talk about um so i think we got to move to that and i think i wanted to lead that section by talking mostly about character and how much this movie is driven by this sort of juxtaposition of two completely separate ideologies uh, that being 
the captain, uh, Lucky Jack Aubrey, and his ship doctor slash old friend, as they call him, uh, Dr. Stephen uh, Maturin. Uh, one of them obviously being a for the king and country, for the service, you know, um, do your duty and, and fight your wars versus Maturin, who is very much a... They almost call him an anarchist at one point. Um, and he seems very counter counter system anti anti system um and very very much like a uh, naturalist at one point he's like why can't we i'm paraphrasing but he's like why can't we go out the island and look at the life and find cool beautiful natural things instead of going off to destroy more stuff um but yet somehow these two polar opposites are best of friends and at the end of the day the story revolves around them balancing each other out yeah, I I uh, agree that the this is a story about those two. Uh, the all the rest, like the chasing of that other, but all of that, uh, like that's plot, and that's interesting. But the story is about these two men and their relationship and uh, their views on the world. Now, uh, this brings up a very interesting point about a, a divergence from the book to this to the movie. Um, the doctor, Stephen Maturin, uh, in the book, he is a English spy. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So he's, he's hanging out with him, but he's like a legit spot. Like he's a spy. He's, he were, he's also king and country, yada, yada, yada. And they allude to that. Uh, there's a, like a quick scene where they're discussing how did they find us? Well, they have spy, the French have spies just like us. And then it cuts to a close up of Paul Bettany who goes, indeed or something like that um and so i was like oh that's like a little nod to the book like if if they did do sequels which they were i think was the intention when they made this movie was that they might get into that type of stuff later um you can't put 13 books worth of information in one two-hour movie um but the other thing is i so things i noticed about their relationship there's a very traditional uh paternal character which is the russell rush uh russell crowe character and there's a very maternal character with traditional like values uh which is uh the paul bettany character and um and like i mean they they do the they do the husband and wife cliches that you would find in other movies right down to like so there's that there's that cliche in a movie where like the wife's giving birth and she she checks with the husband are you okay and Paul Bettany later in the movie is doing that like self surgery, and he says, and he like looks to Russell Crowe in the middle of the surgery, and he says, "Are you okay?" Like checking in, like I'm doing all the hard work here, bud, but you seem like you have an issue. Are you fine? Cool, let's continue, kind of thing. And uh, and I thought that was like a like a a little sweet moment, but also b a big uh, hat tip from the writers about like this is how we view this relationship. It isn't. Which you are with your old friends. You you become that old married couple, right? You, like um, true friends. Yeah, uh, not in not se sexually, of course, but it, like in a in a relationship that has gone on for many many years. Like you know, you can bicker like an old married couple. They'll say about two gentlemen or two women that have known each other for years. Um, so I thought all that played really well. I never even picked up on that husband wife relationship at all. Like I I always kind of view especially in in older and not that this is that much of an older movie but at this point it kind of is um but older movies and movies about 
older time periods where it is about heterosexual relationships between two guys there seems to be a lot of that sort of tension almost of like the relationship if between good friends is more than just a couple of dudes being friends you know it's like there's a a physical connection that nobody's going to say out loud because it's not with the times and whatever to do that but is still present so i always kind of see that but i never like the, that clear connection i didn't follow until now that you've said it out loud i'm like oh shit that is what they were doing it seems it jumped out off the page this time to me and and i don't know that it's it's yeah uh, but what and what you're saying like the like old uh, like classic film or whatever like um if you go back and look at like the love triangles of like a lot of classic film noir it's between the femme fatale the protagonist detective generally or cop or whatever hardens and then his partner his male count his male partner is usually the third per- it's rarely the husband or the partner of the femme fatale that's making the third part of that triangle it's usually a male counterpart in his life and and to be honest the love triangle in this one if if crow and betney <laughs> oh, are I'm ready for this but i think the crew slash the ship if we if the ship is all encompassing of the crew on it is the third part of that love triangle they both want what's best for the ship and each other yeah and they have different ideas oh i like that and then and the other thing i thought about like so thematically there's a couple things that jumped out at this uh, from this movie to me uh one of which was uh kind of progress slash uh modernity slash the next step in society this is set obviously it's set when it's set because that was like the golden age of uh naval warfare but it's also set i think in this particular time and again that's a difference from the book to the film they 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 instead of it being during the american revolutionary war of 1812 between the brits and the americans this became a movie about between the british and the french Partly because it's an American-funded film, they thought American audiences wouldn't understand who to cheer for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which I, I mean, th- rightfully so, I suppose. Is it? I mean, Letters of Iwo Jima. Like, there's other. There's been yeah. other movies that have come. And it, like, listen, there's not a great history of success of making America the enemy in a movie, but um, I feel like in a cat and mouse spy gamey type of way, or like between two ships hunting each other it's not like it really vilifies the french they're just two crews they even at fact, the beginning connect the two of them as like you know there's the whole line of oh of the, uh, him being like oh what did i do did i kill his his son or whatever and then the guy's like no man he just fights like you i mean it's very i think it's very much on purpose that the first and like and the only time we see the other captain until the climax of the film the french captain is through the looking glass and it's through him looking at him self reflected back on himself. It. <laughs> like it's, it's, he's like, and often they even, even put the glimmer of the other glass looking. So th- they're both doing the same action at the same moment, staring at each other. And you and, can't see either face. And they are the, sh- they are the mere shadow version of themselves on, on both. Sides. Yeah. He, it's just silhouette. You just see a person doing the same task that he's doing on that boat on the other boat. Anyway. So they talk about the technology of the, uh, sorry, I keep forgetting. The Asheron. The Asheron. 
uh, they keep talking about the technology and, oh, what a modern age we live in or something is one of the quotes, uh, paraphrasing. Um, and within like 70 years, steam vessels are coming. Iron laced ships are coming, right? Like that's the pinnacle of these wooden ships is made obsolete within with with less than the lifespan of what a ship would go through. So the these these ships are almost dinosaurs coming off dry dock. They don't know that. Not nobody knows that yet. No, because the advance of technology at the time had been so slow that even such a small change was such a drastic improvement. And, and so this is the end of the age of discovery and the start of the industrial revolution is right like th like this is going to happen in the century that this is the start of that century and i don't i again like i realize why they've said it this time but i think that's on purpose and i think paul bettany's character represents modernity represents the next step like it's why they make those allusions to the galapagos well like uh, darwin because yeah 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 darwin's theory of evolution was was uh, uh, I think either like just before 1900 or on the dot 1900. It, so it was the movie set in 1805. Yeah. The voyage that Darwin goes on that takes him to the Galapagos is, is sets off from England in 1831. So it's 30 years before his actual voyage to the Galapagos that they say that um, Maturin was there and was almost you know darwin yeah and and it's and it's but it's like darwin it was 31 years or whatever but but darwin's publishing publishing about the his findings didn't happen for another like oh he didn't publish it until he was basically dead yeah like because he, he, he wasn't was, comfortable with like, he was going against god yeah, yeah. Right? like this is like and they make a bunch of allusions to it but it's that old world folding into the new world which is uh so there's that paul bettany talking to uh to the young man who lost his arm and uh, he says, uh, did God change all these creatures to look like, you know, a thorn or whatever the, the, evolution? <laughs> he's asking if God created. And he's like, of course. But do they also change themselves is the really br brilliant line. I mean, if he had said that not in a boat, like a, in a vessel's uh, cabin between two people. To but, like a kid. But if he had said that, like in Rome at the time he would have fucking been burnt at the stake excommunicated like, yeah. probably killed yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean like darwin was a heretic to a lot of people for years like like for like to most of yeah you know western civilization at the time he was a heretic and so and so i think that's and and the other point of, of it is also so napoleon's like come like rise to power was also the end of the french monarchy so this is all like this was a really troubling time for the status quo in Europe. So this is the French Revolution, well, which leads to the American Revolution, which leads to the Russian Revolution. Like, in a way, like the Bolsheviks thing happens like seven years after you, this. You can call them disconnected, but at the end of the day, you know that all of these things well, no, yeah. are influenced by the previous ones and people who see it and think maybe we can do that. And the reason I think this, the theme of this movie is, is a bit about the staving off of the old world from the new world or the new world order or whatever you want to call it or modernity or whatever you want to call it is because there's a, t uh, so, and I think Russell Crowe plays very much a, so the crew, the boat is the old world is is the caste system of england is is the hierarchy you are born into what you are and you you cannot change that 
your blood determines what you do in life, not your ability. You're an officer because you're of the upper class, and you're a sailor because you're of the lower class. Those 14-year-old kids that are on the boat in, in officer positions are there because their family's rich. Probably not the richest, but they own a business, or they're rich in some... They're, they're, they're in an ownership class. They're in and a, they're being prepared to, to be, be a ruler or a commander. Well, or and, a, a, and, and this was how you they, the British Navy trained their officer corps right up through the First World War, I read. They still had teenagers on boats. Yep, yep. Which, which is, is crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy that, but, but the movie treats that so well where you just like, you just, everybody accepts it. You're like, this is how it is. And so you accept it. Yeah. Even though you know that like half those kids are going to end up dead at the end of it. I will say I had more of a problem watching all these kids die this time than I did previous. And I oh. don't know what that means about, about me, but like, <laughs> um, but I also will say just kind of the reflexive nature of what the world is now has placed me in a more like conscious thought of like, mm. of like, wow, we shouldn't abuse children like that. Not that I, it's just that <laughs> it's not that I thought we should abuse no, children course. before, but I, I was spanked growing up and stuff. So there was a certain level of like corporal you're, punishment. You're that of I a particular was like, generation. Yeah. And so like the, to me, the biggest theme of this movie is that is time is that is the, that's so Paul Bettany plays the, is the personification of change and the future and the ship itself is linked to England. In fact, Russell Crowe even says, this ship is England. Yeah, like, yeah. And throughout the movie, they keep hammering home. The reason they're doing things is just to keep the status quo. Well, and, and why, the, why did you whip that guy? Because he didn't salute you. Well, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. Because if we let a little bit of the lower class think that they can get away with this, we will have a mutiny. We will have a revolution on a country scale. Like a revolution on a ship is a mutiny. A revolution in a country is a is a tossing over the government. And a crew, yeah. And and it's actually it's funny. I had to look this part up because I every time I watched it, I was trying to figure out what this was about. But when they're singing that uh, song, Spanish ladies, the there's like the deck hands start taking up the call and they're all singing it and getting along, and then suddenly they all kind of fade out to quietly, and it's just Holland singing, and. I could not figure out, like, I thought maybe there was something about Jack and his past that that song was touchy or something because they cut to him. But what it actually is, is that officers are not meant to sing with lower crewmen. It disrupts the hierarchy and it places them at, in less of a position of authority if they sing along with their crewmates. And so as soon as he joins in, they all stop because it makes them uncomfortable and he's the one who doesn't seem to understand that hierarchy well enough or or doesn't follow that hierarchy and who is which obviously his whole character arc is filled with these little moments that you're like oh if you don't pay attention you don't pay attention and then suddenly he's at the bottom of the ocean with a cannonball in his pocket and you're like oh well okay um but that was another one of those instances of of that sort of and and the director has said specifically in some of the behind the scenes like making of stuff that in his mind, Paul Bettany is the modern man and um, uh, Jack is like the idealized old school masculine figurehead of like the old system uh, that and him being the captain represents the ship himself as well, obviously. But that like within those characters, that becomes the juxtaposition as well as like the modern changing 
perspectives versus the old perspectives. See, and I think that's interesting that that's what they were going for because that's not quite the read I got watching it. Um, A, I agree with you. That moment where he starts singing, like on reflection, watching it the second time, and it really stuck with me, his character arc. So I remembered that as soon as I saw him, I was paying attention to things. And when he starts singing, that's the death nail already for that character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All the I ju- mean, all argu- the- arguably the moment he doesn't beat to quarters and somebody else has to do it right at the beginning of the movie. Sure. But that's like but, the final straw, essentially. Right, because I felt like that first one is them all getting the measure of the man and they go, okay, and but they're all willing to go, well, maybe he's nervous, it's his first whatever let's not do anything and his or like he can't possibly know for sure because he didn't yeah. really see so and, maybe and all that stuff and then the second that second um slip of convention if you will uh, is when they all go okay no this guy's a joker we can't trust him and it's not till later when the guy that has a uh, a coin for part of a skull <laughs> starts uh saying all that stuff about he's the curse the he's jonah. the jonah he's the superstition and that's why I thought the boat as a the boat and its crew as a character played the old world and Paul Bettany played the new world and that was the whole thing is the strife of Russell Crowe trying to appease or find common ground in like he want like Russell Crowe to me has a foot in both grounds in both worlds so he, you know um it's the reason they stop at the Glavgos ultimately is cuz uh, cuz of Paul Bettany's character getting shot. Um, but it's not like, um, and so he's caring for a dear friend in that moment, but it's not that it's not that to me, it's not only that it's also that he is, he understands the needs and wants of this character who, if he is a representation of the future, uh, and naturalism and all like, like the study of, of the earth, um, uh, Russell Crowe innately understands that's something that is is a potential good thing for king and country and good thing for the world and all that that sort of thing. Uh, but then, you know, his first duty is to the old world, is to the status quo, is to what it was like. Well, and I think that we're saying the same thing in a sense, because I think that by having uh, the Russell Crowe character represent the old world and through him the whole ship and crew because he is the one who commands and leads them and so therefore they all are in essence part of his system um but i think it's also a nod to the fact that that old system is not the one that sticks around because despite the fact that jack uh represents it and and is sort of embodying that old idea he he gives in in the end to the forces of change and comes to realize that um, at the end of the day, the dogged hunt, the dogged pursuit is not the only answer and that there is a better way of, of going about it. But he, he still doesn't change his view on the hierarchy. And he still at the end, when they come across the ship once again, it's not like he says, oh, well, we're on the island. You finish what you're doing and get your animals back here and it's fine. We'll figure it out. You know, he still is in that vein of we are for king and country. We are doing our service. We are still following this hierarchy. He's just beginning that leniency of of that system switching to a new 
way of thinking. Yeah, uh, I, yes. And and um, I guess I just think that his whole the whole time his character to the other informs the other characters in this uh, uh, the Russell Crowe character that is the Aubrey uh, Captain Aubrey. He he's saying um, he's saying to the other characters that the reason he's doing uh, all of this the, this being the chase is honor and duty. And it's revealed like at the midpoint of the film that it's not it's not duty because his duty is to stop at brazil and he goes around the like the most famously the most dangerous <laughs> like sailing route of like of all time around the uh, bottom of south america around cape horn um and he does that he goes through a squall around that cape in pursuit and it almost destroys his vessel like uh, and causes the death of one of his uh one of our main characters and one of the people we're meant to connect with. Yeah, so then so then you have to ask yourself if it's not duty then it's honor or and, pride. And, but this is what I'm going to oh. say. So exactly that is that is it honor of country or is it honor of self? And there's that self honor, that pride which is like which to me is why he's okay to do um because yeah, famously, there's all these stories in British history, but like that, it's about like their their people in war demonstrating this honor that like in some cases gets them killed because they're so honorific and they have such such a duty bound sense of themselves and what is honorable that they put themselves in the situation where they die well i mean that goes to the fact that the way they used to fight was literally standing in lines shooting at each other without moving because the honorable thing is not to uh be sneaky and hide the honorable thing is to stand and face your enemy and if you're using guns it's the same as swords well i also remember reading something about how when the french developed the crossbow the English refused to use it because it took no skill, quote unquote, to use oh. it. Whereas there was a skill to archery. The so, long, the longbow is classically and, a hard weapon to learn. Yeah, but 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 still, there like to to it by modern parlance, that would be like if someone invented a new missile that you, you wouldn't use it because the old missile you had to do math on the fly to for its coordinates, and this missile you can just hit a button. Like that doesn't make sense not to you to incorporate that, but that's also our modern sense of warfare and whatever, and also just technological growth in general. Yeah, and and uh, but what I mean to say is that someone who is stuck completely in the old system, of course, would never like maybe that first diversion they use with the with the barrel uh, raft diversion that would be used in you know honor honorable things but i feel like disguising your ship as a whaling ship and all the, the like the what is the climax of this film i don't think that someone who would be like the honorable warrior would ever would pull something like that off except for this character has one foot in the modern age and of course he gets the idea which is a little you know a little too convenient but he gets the idea from from his best friend a little deus ex you might say. yeah yeah like whatever it, it is what it is i bought it it was fine it, and it is fine you know but he gets the idea from the stick insect like oh camouflage ourselves and and he says like oh i'll start paying attention to the national na natural world if it provides military secrets 
ironically, he changes, but he doesn't at the same time. Well, but and ironically, though, in the study of history, tons of people use natural history as a way as methods for war, like the the steppe uh, tribes in Asia um, often used how they hunt uh, their the things they discovered by hunting herd animals to being the same way they would hunt or engage in battles with humans. And so there was this one move they would do where they would essentially encircle a, uh, a formation of the enemy. And that formation would, of course, kind of make a box shape where they're trying to keep the bow bows that they're shooting from their horses out uh, off of them. So they create a, a thing. But what they would eventually found out they would do, that would take so long shooting bows. You would you'd lose a lot of arrows shooting them in. So if they just popped a little hole in that circle the scared people that were in the middle of the circle would see that as an opportunity to flee and they would all run for that hole in the circle. But of course, what that would do is stretch out your line and expose your rear and all of that stuff. And then, so from the Huns right through the Mongolians uh, and, and uh, would, and Scythians would all be able to just, you just pick all the horse archers would just pick Open off. the flanks up. Yeah. And, and uh, so like the natural world, has been studied by countless generals over the generations. So I found that a little weird that they didn't, that he was like making a note of it in this case. I think, I think it, it is less his in a movie that is extremely dedicated to the idea of historical accuracy and to realism in a way that a lot of naval um, strategy and combat movies have not been. Um, that is one example, I think, where they elected to go with uh, the less real option over presenting a complete character arc that became a little more important, perhaps. Definitely. That was that was them saying, oh, look, uh, he compromised his ideals by not pursuing them so that the do- they could go to the Galapagos so the doctor could get his surgery uh, in a, the safest environment they could provide. And then the doctor, therefore, in in return, of course, we see the that big shot uh, it, uh, right before the climax of the film of all the lizards c- crawling out of the various cages they've built because they've had to ditch all of his research in order to get back to the boat to warn them that they've seen the enemy vessel. And uh, so uh, obviously, there's that you know that f- that full give and take that uh so like in the in the story wheel the story arc the cambellian story missions the the road of trials the fourth step uh is is all the things that lead up to betney getting shot and and so the winter the 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 crazy heat the kid jumping off the boat uh betney getting shot then them going to the galapagos the galapagos would be the meeting of the goddess would be this area where you want to uh you want to relax you wa- and never you want to relax to and you want to stay yeah exactly so there's the, the the crew members are playing cricket there's the people cutting up the cactus to make uh, a form of tequila i presume and then you know and then he's off he's well first getting uh field surgery and then he's off gallivanting around the galapagos yeah. looking uh looking for that that bird and other species and so that is that that is that meeting of the goddess that is that thing so like the coming out of that he's now made the active decision betney that is to join the fight to put aside 
his preferred actions in order to uh, go with what's greater for the common good in his world, which is the ship. Um, it's not the greater good necessarily, but it's the common good for the world he lives in, which is the confines of the, the ship. And uh, and now we're on our, our way back to the normal world. We're on our way back up. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I just I just found it interesting that it falls perfectly into that that wheel. That's a story circle of, of Campbell. But also the, the hero's journey. The hero's you know. journey. Yeah. Um, I did find it interesting. It's a little bit of a side point, but not entirely. But going off of that, your thoughts kind of connect to this theme that I sort of picked up on of, you know, responding to the call of duty and the idea of of um, doing your duty for king and country, which seemed to be one of the more powerful sort of motivating factors of the whole uh, of of the whole film. I mean, the, you, you've got this whole discussion of of Lord Nelson throughout the beginning and and his sort of glorious deeds and him being like their personification in a way of of England and what they're fighting for and someone to look up to in that regard. Um, and then you've got this character who's now going so far beyond his his orders in that sort of hunt for personal pride, like you were saying. Um, or what seems to be personal pride at a certain point. And I think the movie fairly clearly says that, although it doesn't, he never admits it himself. But Well, just to add to that, in, in the research I had done, I think this was also in the book, but not the movie, is so England had a deal not unlike the Romans had with their uh, armies, which the Roman rule was if you sacked a city um, before they gave up, then the general of that army and all the people involved in that army got the spoils of that city. Whereas if they gave up, uh, that was way lessened because Rome itself got a big cut of the spoils. Because you didn't have to do as much of the work. In the same way that the prize of that Asheron, right. which they go to claim, I'm sure he is in some way driven by the desire but then at the end he still gives it away to somebody else does he though because he gives away the ship but the ship isn't the prize the prize is all of the oil and the various goods that were on that ship and if you remember when they bring the whalers on board the whalers mentioned that they were out on a two-year voyage yeah yeah so that they uh, and the the sum they give i think is twelve thousand pounds yeah of oil but I mean, and now let's take that back 300 years or whatever from now. And what was 12,000 pounds back then? And that's an insane amount of money. And so like that alone would have been a massive prize and more money than these guys would have ever seen in their lives outside of the officer class. Um, so I think the and in the books, I believe he's in debt. Like it's the bo books start with them in England and Aubrey's in debt to his prize lender because one like because this was a tradition and like this privateering, you get a letter of mark from the king and you can attack people from, who are bearing a French markings or, or as, yeah, as a, a privateer, that's or the, yeah. the later and Spanish five or years American later, or... it would be American. Right. And so you, you get that letter of mark from the king. You can take these boats as prizes. That's both the vessel itself and its contents and the people on board as well. The prisoners, um, so all of those things were very important. And if, 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 if what I read was correct, which is that in the book, 
Aubrey had like is carrying a debt from prize lenders because this was an industry created due to this uh, uh, whole thing. We lend you money to go out on your voyage because They're we expensive. expect you to take some boats down and and we will take a cut of your prize on the on the return. And so that like if you think about that as part of his motive like it definitely skews the honor and everything away from it. It makes it like a like a capitalist like venture that's like (laughs) which less cool but but at the same time more accurate maybe and all of us like i mean if we're all honest most of us do things that for money like money motivates a lot of us in the modern world it's an interesting difference i think because on one hand first of all i think that the books and and books in general have a lot of capacity to do more with character and story purely because of time there's so much more time there's so much more room to be able to grow with and exist with these characters and learn more about them um especially when you have like i think it was a 20 book series at the end of it or something 13 is it 13 okay 13. um so like you've got more space to live with those and i think that the movie made the right call and not not ever showing us England. Like we get glimpses, like there's moments of, you know, he's writing a letter to Sophie that I believe is supposed to be his sister. Uh, or he talks about how, um, you know, he like he, ta- he talks about the parents of Blakeney when he's getting his arm cut off. Like, oh, you know, his mother, oh boy, um, she won't be happy with me. You know, like on a personal level um, that suggests that they have something to go back to and that he's not out here on a suicide mission to to try and like reclaim something per se, he has a reason to go home. Um, But at the same time, it gives us a sort of focus on the, what's what the movie seems to want, which is more the idea that honor uh, both personal and for your country is, is important. And it's what I think is kind of supposed to be a balancing crux of, of, why we care about these people is because they're honorable and because they're doing these things, but also recognizing when they realize they've gone too far, that that is, you know, a good approach. Um, And I don't think that showing something like that money uh, owing situation or whatever would have served the movie very well for the time that it had. No, but I I think my I guess my point about it is to me honor and duty have always been a recruiting tool uh for military and for various things. Yes. It's also, you know, like if you if you transpose that to when I was younger it was like be a man and do this or mm. whatever, right? Because like saying like be a Canadian and do this didn't mean much to me. No, because I mean, being a Canadian for a long time didn't like, mean I, anything. I it's like, what this, is a Canadian? Yeah, and I am, and I am that. Um, but when I'm a boy, I'm not yet a man, and so mm-hmm. I strive to be one. So that was like this thing held over me as a kid, like to do things, like man up, be a man, blah blah blah. And uh, and that's, I guess, in uh, like in my middle age now, I look back on things like that, and and then therefore. That's also how I see honor and duty was like is a way to get ideological teenagers to join your fight. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's true. I also think that 
Now, this is my interpretation. I don't know. Maybe this was, wasn't the intention. But I definitely felt like the movie was putting stock in the idea of honor and the four king and country. And I, I think that it was trying to find this middle ground of respecting and wanting people to feel a connection to that pride in your home and that pride in your um your country and and doing your your duty versus also balancing that with understanding where the line is and understanding that as the world changes the way that we serve our countries and the way that we do things change um and i think that especially when they emphasize the age and that one scene where the where jack uh, specifically says, oh, do you call me an aged man of war, this shit? Like, he's specifically calling himself younger. Like, he's still sort of seeking that kind of young I- young ideal of glory and fame and, you know, something that you can retire to and tell your kids about when he does finally go home. Uh, sort of sells that up a little bit in my mind. But Yeah, and I, I do think that it, that was part of the filmmaker's intentions was to play that as part and probably Russell Crowe's intentions was to play that as the reason his motive his character's motivation I'm just saying there is a read of this film a lot that's a lot more cynical to what I've been describing which is that you know this is a guy that gets off on action and gets mm-hmm. off on outsmarting his opponent and that he is very good he's a very good naval commander as they constantly tell us yeah but uh, but if you're very good at something naturally you want to do it and uh and so so to stop pursuing as his orders said at brazil of that ship even though uh by some capacity that one ship, if it makes it to the Pacific, will turn the whole tide of the war, which seems a little flimsy. I don't me. think it was the Pacific. I think it was that taking the war to the southern seas was what was going to change it. Because with the Asheron in the region of Africa and South America, there was a huge powerhouse that was now patrolling a route that previously was not under conflict. Fair enough. So so it wasn't so much that that one boat would make a difference uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, but it, what it would do is disrupt trade, disrupt the whalers from getting oil back to England and so forth. Yeah. And in the same way that during that time, uh, the English Navy had... Uh, had blocked the ports of France. Um, so they're then saying, oh, well, we'll F you over here. Regardless, there's, there's a few more things I think that can be said, um, but we're getting quite long on this episode now. Uh, so I think we should probably start to wrap it back around. Um, so some concluding thoughts, if there's anything either of us missed that we want to maybe bring up quickly, for example, like, one of the things that really struck me um, was how much time and effort was put into ensuring proper naval terminology, the training that all the cast went through, like um, two weeks of learning how to actually sail and how to actually fire the cannons and, you know, doing all of that with shirts that were colored specific to your rank so that by the time that period was done, they had built this camaraderie of feeling a part of a ship and a part of a crew that was connected 
and the the fact that they created a space while they were away shooting where only pretty much only actors could go they were in a special quarters essentially that they called the monkey bar um and it was just like a space where the actors could spend time there was no tv uh, it was just them playing pool and whatever else and it was just sort of a way for them to connect and form like proper crew br- bonds um so there was there was a lot of effort and time overall put into authenticity and realism and the construction of the ship the purchase of the rose which was uh the last frigate which uh was i think still seaworthy at all and in the proper style and they originally had been a french ship was captured by the british and refitted over time as a british ship um and then refitted again to match the um match the the surprise which they had actual like schematics for what what the ship layout was um and then building custom metal and custom uh braiding rope to make sure all of it was time accurate and things like the detail that was put into it is impressive in and of itself and is definitely a major reason that the the movie for me stands out like the fact that they were willing to not shy away from chases that were you know like slowest chases in tv history of like entire days where just ships slowly getting closer to each other and that sort of thing so i agree with that fundamentally like that all of that added to this film and i felt like uh some of those facts were new to me and but i feel like i felt them on the on the screen um i felt the camaraderie and the closeness of the crew and and uh i wouldn't be surprised within that uh, monkey bar if they somewhat had a division between officers and and like they did for uh, the pre-production of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, they kept Matt Damon away from the other one so that they would have resentment for him on the day. Uh, and I, I felt all that, and, but I actually, um, uh, in, in like wrapping things up here for me, I wanted to talk a bit just about how I thought. Um, I really, I thought the writing was really smart in this picture. And it actually goes to when I started doing a little research about this movie. Uh, if you type in like Master and Commander, and then like you mention anything about the cinematography or anything, the almost all the first Google searches, at least I got, were all about this controversy from about four years ago, which is some person on the internet made some sort of tweet about how this is a really boring movie and they were like if you're having trouble sleeping put on master and commander and within within the first i've never made it past 10 minutes or something this person said and the the reason this got so much play is because russell crowe legit responded to the movie and in it or responded to the uh, tweet rather uh, in defense of the movie saying essentially he says i I think this movie was brilliantly crafted well directed the cinematography is beautiful the music's amazing and and uh you're right this is probably a movie for adults is how is is like the shot he (laughs) takes at this guy right and um, but it got me thinking a little bit because in the past in just discussions about film this movie's come up because it's a brilliant film and and deserves to come up in discussions about film but also because there is a dividing line between some people that find this movie extensively boring, I would say, uh, or excessively boring, um, uh, perhaps going to the f- 
fact that you're talking about like the the chases aren't action-packed the, the fight scenes are action-packed but the chases which is a way to get action in other movies aren't action in this it's it's like i mean one of the chases they have all the young lieutenants out looking at uh using their uh their nautical instruments to <laughs> judge where the sun sextant. is in the sky it's Se- called a sextant sextants uh and so like how exciting is a chase if you can have like six 14 year olds standing with sextons but that's what i loved is that they weren't afraid of that and i think that the people who would say that that's boring are are the same people who would say that 2001 a space odyssey isn't a good movie you know so this is and this is the point i'm getting to is that uh is that uh you know like there's a lot of great things with modern time but the i like starting with like social media like from vine stories right to modern tiktok stories these are people are are being really creative and coming up with ways to tell f- stories in like fifteen minute bursts, fifteen sorry, fifteen second bursts, uh, and or one hundred and fifty pri- characters, well, yeah, two hundred and fifty characters. And and prior to that, you know, when YouTube first came out, I don't think you could put a video more than ten minutes on it and stuff. Like what I'm saying is like all of these social media, partly because of bandwidth, have limited like storytelling to these like here's the like plot point plot point plot point is how you tell a story uh whereas they're like stories like this that are rich like this you want to give time to breathe to things i mean you'd and- never see a modern movie use 10 minutes of its time just watching a doctor and a couple people run around on an island collecting animals that are just gonna get discarded and never used and I had a friend that, like, uh, when I was talking about this movie, again, this is, like, years ago, but he, he said, like, oh, you could have cut down the island sequence by, like, half. But that's not and the I point said, of it. I said, no, that's, yeah, exactly. Like, it's the same as a bridge in a song, right? Like, it's this, it's that moment, it's the moment to breathe in the movie. It's the moment to go, ah, There's as the a audience, reason. before the, it's, and it's, it's the point furthest from where we've been. And now we're going to go back, like, we're on our way back to normal, like, back to the real world. There, There's a reason that I can't remember details about a lot of modern movies versus remembering details about older movies. And the reason is that when you have that time to breathe in the middle, when you have those gaps where things aren't happening every 35 seconds, your brain is given that moment to process what's already happened and understand it without feeling like you're stressing trying to figure out the next thing and i i I can't remember where i read this i don't have any source for it now but i'm sure that it was like a proper psychological article or something that talked about how uh giving that space to breathe literally does allow people to remember films better and remember events better and it process and think more about those whereas if you've got something that is just action scene after action scene after action scene you get to the end of it and you don't really remember most of it and you didn't process a lot of it because you never had that space to do it. But when you've got these dinner scenes where you can sit with the characters and be right there and, and see like dialogue that has nothing to do with the story, but tells you something about who the characters are, you get a chance to sort of experience and process all of it. And come out of it with a better understanding. Well, and it's all of those moments that earn the moments later. Yeah. Right? Which is what we don't have in... And listen, I watch Fast and the Furious 
movies when they come out as well. Oh, of course. Um, but there's a reason why it doesn't feel earned in the third act of those movies when The Rock or Vin Diesel are doing something. And it's because you don't have those moments in the first act and the, and the start of the second act that like earn those moments in the latter half of the second act and the third act. Well, and there's a reason that, and you wouldn't know this, but earlier on in this podcast, we talked about the first two or three Fast and Furious movies because we're, uh, you know, pinnacles of cinema here on Cinematics. Um, but we talked about it, and, and it's the reason that I think the first Fast and the Furious movie is actually a good film because it has those moments of character building and discussion and, like, slowed down points where you actually get to kind of live in the in the movie before it goes back to being crazy action and then they just kept upping the stakes until yeah. suddenly it, it, the shark has been jumped by minute five there's the like uh, well yeah the, i i mean i haven't watched the first fast and the Furious movie in like 10 years but like you watch a man eat a tuna fish sandwich a couple times yep like that's that's something that like is silly but it but it also goes to character and establishes the th- the triangle at that moment between Dom his sister and the undercover cop uh and and ultimately that relationship th- that triangle of relationship is what's going to drive the series for a bunch of films as far as I know uh, I I mean this but they'll is a, try and drive the series yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but like it's also it uh it goes and it goes to that there's in the office there's this great moment where in one of the latter seasons uh the American office um, the Steve Carell character, Michael Scott, takes a job at a uh, uh, um, in order to make ends meet at a call center overnight, and uh, like it turns out that he's like a, this really interesting, cool guy to all these like call center people, and I forget how it comes up, but anyways, it cuts back to him and he's going and he's talking about the Die Hard series, and he's talking about how in the first Die Hard, it's just this regular guy who's going to L.A. to meet up with the white his estranged wife. And he's just this normal guy. And by the third or fourth movie or whatever, he's like, he's driving a police car uh, off some concrete dividers of a highway and launching it like a projectile into a, into a helicopter. (laughs) And, uh, and like, yeah, that's cool. But like, where did this guy learn that? Uh, Because like in the first movie, we watch him go on this, the, the, like, like that first Die Hard movie, the reason it's held up and why that has that inane conversation about it being the greatest. The best pit Christmas movie of all time, which yeah. is accurate. Uh, fine. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it, the, like, it's just, it, it, the reason it's considered a, like by many as like a great movie is because like the script is lit- is the hero's journey. It's, it's this uh, guy full of faults and fa- uh, failures at the start who does, who thinks he's going to do this one thing, but is in fact, going to do this other thing and then we watch him uh grow like the the like crux of that movie is the is the scene where he's uh which is is like the meeting of the goddess scene in that movie which is he's sitting he's on he's on the the radio talking to the other police guy and after going through everything he's been through up to this point he's cleaning the blood off his feet and he's picking the glass out of his feet and he's sitting on the sink and he's talking about how his how he failed in his marriage, and because that's what this whole thing is about. It's about a man trying to fix his marriage, and uh, and you know, and that's that whole want versus need thing or whatever. 
and uh, he wants to fix his marriage. And then he's literally giving the opportunity to save his marriage by saving his wife, like saving them from not, not the, not the, the fights and all that stuff, but like literally saving them. And, uh, but in it, of course he learns all of his faults and how he's been not like he's been a rigid dick and, and hasn't been like flexible in his marriage and all this stuff. And this is way off topic, but it's, it's, it goes to all of this stuff. It goes to that storytelling. It goes to those moments that some might think are boring, but are in fact the whole reason why the end of the movie pays off. Yeah, I don't have much to fill that out. That was a very well-rounded uh, conclusion. So thank you. Um, something I wanted to bring to the table, being invited onto this podcast, as as you've been so kindly to do, uh, I, I kind of wanted to have a quantitative end for the listeners and ourselves about each film we kind of talk about and uh, have a better understanding of maybe if if you haven't seen it, if this is something you want to see. So I've kind of have a few different categories. Um, but first of all, for me, sometimes I feel like I've got to be in a certain mood to watch a movie. Uh, did this one strike you as that? Did you feel like you had to be in a certain mood to watch this movie? For me, no. That's That's coming from my perspective of put a ship in a movie and I'm going to watch that movie regardless, you know? I mean, maybe there's a sense of, of you have to be prepared for a slower pace. Um, but I think that's more a matter of taste than it is mood. Yeah. I would say the same. I would say you have to settle it. You have to kind of, I think any, uh, good film connoisseur like ourselves mm. would, uh, um, something I often do before I watch a movie is check the runtime. And so just be prepared that you're in for a two hour um, event. And so if, if, and as far as pace and, and excitement and stuff, I think this is chock full of that. So um, I don't, I didn't find this movie slow. I don't think you need to be in a certain mood to watch it. I think this is something you could watch on a Saturday afternoon or a Friday night kind of thing. Like it's, it's good for either. Uh, the next thing uh, that I would ask of you is, do you find this movie um, rewatchable? Is it something that you would return to in the future? Um, well, I watched it twice in three days for this episode and did not have a problem with that. And that's coming back to it after having watched it two or three times before this. And I mean, I bought it. Uh, I have a DVD copy of it. So, uh, I mean, long and short is, yeah, I, I've. I have and will probably continue to come back to this one. For me, it's a it's a rewatchable movie in that it it's like um I I don't find it offensive in any way. I don't find it like difficult to like almost going back to the previous mood thing. It like I don't have to be in a certain mood to watch it. So for that, it's a rewatchable movie. Now, is it like on the top of like if i needed to pick out a movie to watch is this one of the ones that i would go for right away uh well historically to this point no um but having revisited it now uh it's 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 cons like i would consider it now in my head as as a more rewatchable film than i did previous to now I, I enjoyed it more now than I did when I watched it back when it came out. Is that because of because of watching it for the show, or is that just because you as a person with tastes has changed? 
Uh, I think it's a bit of the the latter. I think my tastes have changed. I think um, I think I yearn for a slightly slower paced, well characterized drama. Um, whereas um, because I've maybe been over so overloaded with like action, wall to wall action, isn't something I enjoy as much as I did when I was a teenager. Um, you're getting old, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But I also think it is looking at it from a critical eye. And I find there, as a film, like as a, like as a person who works in film and as a person who wants to one day make films, um, there's a lot to understand and to educate myself by watching a movie like this. So it, it, for me, it's rewatchable on a couple different fronts, just pure entertainment, but also as a like an educational filmmaking tool. It is a masterclass. It, it is a bit of a masterclass, having, with all the negatives we had previously brought up, but I think that's also part of what's educational about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, finally, um, and these are all kind of related, you'll find, but are, uh, is this a movie, um, because... Today, uh, nowadays, being what they are, uh, and movie rental places don't exist. So if it's not on a streaming services, movies are very hard to get. Is this a movie, if you couldn't find it on a streaming service, would you seek out? Would you, I don't know, what are your other options nowadays? Renting from a library or <laughs> a, a friend who owns it or Finding whatever. Finding a copy at uh, your local, uh, what's, what's it now? It's not HMV. It's Sun... Sun... It Sunshine Records or something? Sure, or? like whatever mom and pop local place well, yeah. is out there. I, I'd like, I don't even, anyway. But like, would you, is this a movie you would seek out to see? Is it that, it would it be, is it that seminal? Is it that important? My answer from my personal perspective is yes. I think that like we, like we talked about, I think with the idea of the learning opportunity that comes from watching a film that is of this caliber and from the um, opportunity it presents as far as understanding a different type of culture, for example, that we no longer have access to, that being old naval strategy, if that's something that is of interest. Like, So on my end, for my personal tastes and whatever, I would 100% track it down um, and I mean, I own it. I found it. I bought it. Um, and I do not regret that decision uh, because I think that one way or another, watching it uh, has been an important experience in my filmmaking uh, progression. Yeah. So um, this this movie was your choice to bring to the table. It was. And because uh, of that, or not because of that, but uh, with that understanding, it's less important to me or what, it bears less importance in my filmmaking uh, history relationship with film. Um, but having said that, like if you've never seen this movie, seek it out. Go find it somewhere. Uh, if you're in the States, I believe it's on Amazon Prime. If you're in Canada... Um, I think it YouTube renting it on YouTube is one of the options, or uh, Google Play, or rent Google it. Play, rent it. 
I think you can get it on Apple TV. That's how I watched it. You can also rent it on Amazon Prime. You just have to pay for it. Yeah. So there's there are some streaming services that have it. None of them that have it combined with the in Canada with the combined uh, rate you're paying for the streaming service. Uh, but I would pay the rental fee to watch this uh, if you've never seen it. If you've seen it as a revisit, I don't know that I would go seek it. I don't know that I would do the work to seek it out as a revisit. I think that's fair. I think if you hadn't seen it and acquired it to watch, it would be worth attempting to acquire it in a keepsake sort of way so you could revisit it. But if all you were doing was renting it for like one, a couple of days worth of viewing, I probably wouldn't rent it again to watch it again. That's, that's, I think that's fair to say. All right. All right. Yeah, no, I think we, we agree there. Um, and then finally, if you were to rate this film, I, I, I find, uh, per- personally that, uh, film ratings, two thumbs up, uh, four out of five stars, all of that is fairly garbage because it's uh, super personal. So if you were to rate this film, how would you rate it? Um, well, based on the quality of cinematic, um, the quality of the overall cinematic experience, my enjoyment personally of the story, I think I would give it uh, a total of 23.5 tugboats. 23.5 tugboats. That's a solid score. Myself, I think I would find it somewhere around um, 14 and a half or 14 and three eighths, maybe flightless comorants. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 pretty good. That's, uh, you know, that's kind of what I expected. That's sort of middle of the road. You know, it's not uh, it's high enough, but it makes sense with your rewatching, you know sentiment yeah exactly (laughs) uh so i hope that has helped uh the listeners of the cinematic podcast uh have more of a definitive idea whether this is a movie they want to watch in the future or not and if you haven't seen it keep in mind there are spoilers in this episode so if you don't want us to spoil this movie for you you'd better watch it before you listen to the episode you can find us on instagram and on twitter um, one of them is Cinematics Cast. The other one is Cinematics Podcast. I have them mixed up in my brain. I don't know which one it is right now, so whoops. One or the other of them is a thing. It's fine. Um, we keep stuff up to date there. You can find us on any platform that you podcast, as far as I know. I mean, if there's some weird one out there that nobody knows about, let me know, and we'll figure out how to get on it so you can listen to it. If you uh, like the show, we'd love to get a five-star review from you. It really helps our views. It helps uh, put us in good places on those platforms to get more of an audience. So thank you guys very much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Uh